Welcome to Hazel and Katniss in Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we are firmly entrenched in Canadian lit this week. We are. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it's Canlit. It's Indigenous Canlit. It's the most literary book we've done so far, I would say, Joe. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So we've got a lot to talk about. Gonna get a little English majory up in this piece. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. But before we do, we should probably do our homework. Yes. Do you want to start? I can start. Yay. So I've been another bad reader, so I'm going to do a book that's on my holds list, but I haven't actually had a chance to read. But this is actually a listener recommendation. Ooh. And I apologize. I can't remember who recommended it. So this is a book called Ken's by Razin Reed. Oh, cool. Yeah. And this one had actually been on my radar. And then when I heard that somebody else was reading it and they said that it was really good, I thought, okay, for sure, I'm going to try to (laughs) eventually get into it. So Ken's is a gay male version of the movie Heathers. Do you know Heathers, Brenna? Um, I just watched the Riverdale musical version of Heathers this week, so I am intimately familiar. (laughs) Okay, I'm not sure that I like that point of reference. It makes me a little concerned. (laughs) But yeah, so Heathers is quintessential film from the late 80s. It stars Winona Ryder and Christian Slater, and it's about an outcast girl who falls in with a clique of mean girls. It's kind of the original mean girls. And these girls are all named Heather. There's three of them. So in this book version of it, it is a boy clique of uh, mean-spirited gays, and they're all named Ken. So I'll just quickly read you. (laughs) That's amazing. I know. I love it. So I'll read you the, the back. Ken Hilton rules Willows High with his carbon copies, Ken Roberts and Ken Carson, standing next to his throne. It can be hard to tell the Kens apart. There are minor differences in each edition, but all Kens are created from the same mold, straight out of Satan's doll factory. Soul, sold separately. (laughs) I'm like, if this is the quality of the book, I'm so sold on it already. (laughs) It's amazing. Tommy Rollins can't help but compare himself to these shimmering images of perfection that glide through the halls. In a school where the Kens are queens who are treated like queens, Tommy isn't on their shelf. A -a once-in-a-lifetime chance at becoming a Ken changes everything for Tommy, just as his eye is caught by the new doll on campus, Blaine. But when their shared desire to overthrow Ken Hilton takes a shocking turn, Tommy must decide how willing he is to reinvent himself inside and out. Is this new version of Tommy everything he's always wanted to be, or has he become a puppet in a sadistic plan? Oh. It sounds almost identical to the plot of Heather. So I think part of what's intriguing to me, aside from the queer sex inversion, is how this story will separate itself from Heather's because it's one thing to just retell a story and change a couple of the characteristics. And it's one thing to have a product that stands on its own. Right, right. It'll be interesting. I read his first book. Mm. uh, Which is called When Everything Feels Like the Movies. Which reminds me a lot of sort of a white queer version of the lesser blessed actually <laughs> like yes actually until you said it i didn't realize i've read that too yeah it's a hard read it's a hard read it's a dark hard read so it sounds like he's taken a complete other angle with ken's, ken's. Yeah. yeah i'm gonna check it out for sure i really liked it i really liked uh whenever they feels like the movies it is dark but i do think it has a lot in common with the book we're talking about today 
mm-hmm. sort of that northern setting, that feeling of not being able to escape, and what does it mean to come of age in a place where there doesn't seem to be a lot of future, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've actually heard rumors that there's a movie adaptation in the works of When Everything Feels Like the Movies, and I would be so into that, but also I think that would be the hardest of sells. Yes, yeah. What's on your shelf? Mine is a little bit, it's still dark in content, but maybe a little bit more light in delivery than what we're reading this week, but not quite in the Ken's vein. So uh, I'm currently reading and... This book is due back at the library tomorrow, and I'm just, I'm really pushing. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, but I'm trying hard Um, because I love it. I just, it's final season for me, so it's just, all I do is mark and cry. Yep. (laughs) But the book is called The Poet X by Elizabeth Achevedo, I think. It was a National Book Award winner in, oh gosh, I want to say 20... 17 but it might actually be more recent than that and it's fantastic so it's a book about a dominican teen girl and her twin brother and they're growing up with really strict devoutly catholic parents well that's not true very strict devoutly catholic mom and a kind of checked out dad who doesn't rein in any of his spouse's parenting impulses okay and The two are teenagers, and her twin brother keeps to himself. He's very soft-spoken. He doesn't sort of behave like the other boys in their community. And X, our main character, it's short for Xiaomara, I guess. She feels like she's kind of on her own with the dynamic with her mother and with how difficult she finds it to be sort of controlled by her mother's intense domineering Catholicism, but also her desire to like be a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, what she discovers is that she's really friggin' good at slam poetry. Oh, that's yeah. kind of an unexpected turn. I know. And uh, so she joins this poetry club at school. And it's this whole thing because poetry club meets on the same night as catechism class. And so there's this like really concrete like conflict between these two worlds, this world she wants to discover and this world that she's really quite trapped in. But the greatest thing about the book is the entire thing is in verse. Uh, Which we know you love. I love. And it feels like Achevedo is really like she really knows slam poetry. Slam poetry, because it's been really popularized in high schools with some of the various poetry competitions Mm -hmm. that happen and stuff, uh, it sometimes finds itself like it shows up as a plot point in a lot of YA right now. Yeah. It's so hot and edgy right now. <laughs> and it's often by people who just don't. Yeah, they don't have a clue. No, they've watched a couple of YouTube videos and they're like, I'm an expert now. Whereas hey, this... I know Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this really comes from a place of like, obviously really understanding the craft of slam poetry. And so you could read this book aloud. Like that's how on it it is. Cool. Yeah, so I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm hoping to finish it in time. And if not, I'm putting it back on hold. But the other reason I wanted to bring it up is because next month, Acavedo's second book is coming out, which is called With the Fire on High. And uh, I'm just going to read you the synopsis. It says, Ever since she got pregnant freshman year, Imani Santiago's life has been about making the tough decisions, doing what has to be done for her daughter and her abuela. The one place she can let all that go is the kitchen, where she adds a little something magical to everything she cooks, turning her food into straight-up goodness. Even though she dreams of working as a chef after she graduates, Imani knows it's not worth her time to pursue the impossible. Yet despite the rules she thinks she has to play by, once Imani starts cooking, her only choice is to let her talent break free. So I'm kind of in love Hmm. with these books that are about, like, 
hobbies you don't normally read about in YA (laughs) and how they can like direct people's lives in really interesting ways and how even in like a restrained circumstance, your passion can be a space for at least just imagination, if not escape. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway, I thought I'd share that, those two, just because I'm, I'm reading one and the other one is coming out next month. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. So shall we jump into our, our reading for today, Joe? Yes, I actually just realized that we haven't even said what the actual title is. So in oh. the event that someone has <laughs> pressed play on this without checking out the title, we are talking about The Lesser Blessed. Yes, we are. We're talking about The Lesser Blessed and the novel is from 1996. And the movie is 2012. 2012, yeah. So The Lesser Blessed, written by Richard Van Camp. This was his first novel, and it's his only YA standalone, although he does have some short story collections and stuff. Mm -hmm. He is most famous in our house because he writes children's books that my toddler is obsessed with. Which, when you told me that off the air, I was kind of stunned about because... (laughs) This book is so dark and just really emotional. I was trying to imagine what a children's version of that would look like, (laughs) and I realized I don't think that he's writing the same kind of content. No, he's not. Although his children's books are beautiful. They're the kind of children's books where your toddler's enjoying them on one level and you're trying not to cry. On the other level, he has this one called We Sang You Home about waiting for a baby to arrive and it's really beautiful. The art in all of his books is really beautiful. So anyway, no matter what we talk about with the darkness today, even if that's not your jam, if you've got people to buy baby shower gifts for, I highly recommend Richard Van Camp's books. I've never met like a one to four-year-old who doesn't love them. Mm, Cool. Yeah. So that's just apropos of nothing. The novel itself is the story of Larry Soule. Larry Soule is a teenager from the Dog Rib First Nation, and the story takes place in Fort Simmer, Northwest Territories. Fort Simmer is fictional, Mm -hmm. um, but it's maybe roughly based on Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, which is where Richard Van Camp is from. Larry's relatively new to Fort Simmer. He's been there about three years, uh, and he's pretty low on the social pecking order. It's a rough and tumble town. Um, There's a lot of racial divides between the indigenous kids and the white kids. And there's also a lot of just the usual sort of small town in the middle of nowhere, teenage hobbies, fighting, Mm -hmm. doing hash. (laughs) Having Um, sex. Having sex. Yeah. Uh, Drinking. And there's not a lot of hope in this place. And so when this new school year starts... Larry meets Johnny Beck. Johnny has just arrived from a slightly larger, maybe a one-horse town as opposed to a no-horse town slightly (laughs) further north called Hay River. And they become close friends. But there's sort of a rub in their friendship in that Johnny is almost immediately after arriving, ends up pursuing a relationship with Juliet Hope, who is like, crush is not a big enough word for how Larry feels about Juliet Hope. She's sort of everything to him. She's kind of his sexual obsession. Totally. And like the moments when you really don't like Larry in the book are the moments when he's really objectifying Juliet and the the jealousy that he feels about her involvement with Johnny is Mm -hmm. um, not pleasant. No. There's a lot of posturing going on though as well. Oh, absolutely. Like it's a really accurate portrayal of the inner thoughts of a teenage boy, I think, and not in a flattering (laughs) way, you know, like Van Camp is not afraid to let us see Larry kind of warts and all. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a bully in town named Darcy McManus, and um, 
Darcy and Larry have a difficult history, and this often sort of culminates in him being a physical threat to Larry. And I'm sure we'll we'll get into that when we start to talk about some of the some of the other stuff that's going on in the book. Mm-hmm. But basically, all of what is happening is like sort of a typical year at high school in a high school where nobody really cares what happens to you, and the teachers all send their own kids away to get education somewhere else that detail killed me i know right it's just it really underscores not just the hopelessness but the sort of forgotten nature of these kids like they really are left on their own there's not a lot of engaged parenting and there's not a lot of teachers who give a damn Mm -hmm. hence the (laughs) tumultuous pastimes yes exactly exactly that nobody seems to notice or care about the backdrop of all of this is in drips and drabs through the course of the narrative, we find out why it is that Larry came to Fort Simmer in the first place. And Larry has a ton of trauma from his father, violence that he saw his father commit, violence his father committed against him. Mm-hmm. And do we want to say? Um, gosh, that's tough. I, it is. I think we could probably dance around it just because i think this is probably also the least well-known book that yeah. we've covered yeah and i really would encourage people to check it out because i think it's absolutely worth a read even though you kind of got to go on prozac before you <laughs> dig into it yeah. so let's, yeah, it's true. let's dance around it let's just okay. say that his father committed some terrible acts mm-hmm. and larry's Larry. he's bearing both physical and emotional scars from it yeah and not just from being a victim, but from lashing out himself in the only ways he could sort of conceive of in the trapped space he was in. Yeah. And so there's all kinds of relationships that are fractured. Larry's relationship with his mom is on the surface pleasant, but she's ultimately quite emotionally distant from him. There's a couple of scenes where that becomes really clear. Larry's mom is involved with this seemingly great guy named Jed, but she's terrified of men and she's not she's not willing to commit to him in the way that he wants to be committed to. Larry's relationship with Jed, he's been a really positive father figure, but as Larry gets sort of deeper into drugs and violence and staying away from home, his relationship with Jed starts to suffer as well. And so when we meet Larry, he's at this turning point of deciding like how he wants to structure his life and what relationships he wants to prioritize. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really that that question, I think, is what's at the center of the novel itself. I used to teach a literature course where the theme was coming of age in difficult circumstances. And I've taught this book a lot in that context. But it's also, I think, a touching portrait of a troubled kid who wants to do the right thing, but doesn't always have the resources to know what that looks like. And maybe even the emotional capacity. One of the things that I both struggled with but also appreciated within the book is just how real Larry is as mm-hmm. a character. So mm-hmm. you you alluded to some of the language in the book. So when he's talking about Juliet, when he's thinking about Juliet, it can be very vulgar, very profane. But there's a real sense of reality in how Larry is going about trying to engage with the world but also really pulling back from it that just I mean not to get too personal but uh, (laughs) you know when I was a closeted teenager I really felt a lot of those same kinds of emotions Mm -hmm. and I can see this book resonating very very strongly with any teenager or any like middle schooler who Mm -hmm. feels like they're a bit of an outcast that they don't quite know where they fit in Mm -hmm. 
And I know that's a trope for YA. Like, I know that that's a bit of a staple. But I think that this book does it in such a lyrical, like, yes. emotionally compelling way that it's it's really quite a bit deeper than a lot of the other books that we've read. The novel is structured in these kind of, I don't even want to really call them chapters. They're like little vignettes. Like, mm-hmm. we get these, uh, I almost want to describe them as like breaths of Larry's life. Some are quite, quite short. And the result is that Larry is experiencing his life in quite a fragmented way. Like first, first of all, because of trauma. And second of all, because of drug use. Third of all, because he's on like concussion number two or three by the end of the book. So it might be three. So his ability to hold his own experiences kind of all in his head at once is compromised and van camp is very skilled at giving us the same experience as readers like we are struggling to put the pieces of larry's life together in a way that is sometimes frustrating as a reader Mm -hmm. but larry is too right like there's things that larry's suppressed there's things that larry's never talked about there's things that larry only remembers when he is drunk or high and so as he's figuring out a narrative for his life so too is the reader and that makes it really emotional and powerful if sometimes frustrating and it underscores the bleakness often because that makes you emotionally connected to larry in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be in a more straightforward narrative i think Mm -hmm. he's not an unreliable narrator not in the way that you would typically think of more in the way that he himself doesn't always know so there is that almost symbiotic relationship between reader and larry because we're discovering things about him seemingly at the same time as he may be discovering them yeah and that's what makes the i think the reveal of the trauma which kind of comes in three stages at the end of the novel really quite powerful because it's as cathartic for us by that point of the text as it is for larry i think yeah I may have spent a lot of time reading this being like, what is happening here? Like, <laughs> yep. what I don't always understand. And part of me thought, because I was trying to speed read through this a little bit, because I didn't have a lot of time with it. And I thought that maybe it was just that I was skimming it as opposed to really engaging with it. I mean, I'm sure it was a little bit of that. But I think it was mostly the fact that this book is not straightforward. You can't no. just casually dip in and out of it and we talked about this off air before we started we both experienced that where we were kind of picking it up and putting it down and this is a book that's so short it really rewards just a short intensive read as opposed to you know I'm going to read a chapter before I go to bed it doesn't work well that way no because it's almost like watching the story knit together in real time and if you can sit down and just like read it all at once absorb it all at once the effect is much more effective, I guess. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I've read this book a lot of times now because I have taught (laughs) it so many times. Yeah. And it is a book that rewards rereading. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of slow paced reveal. There's a lot of incredibly subtle foreshadowing, like not foreshadowing like from English class where it's like somebody's pointing an arrow (laughs) at the book for you, but like, I'm still finding stuff in this book and it's only 119 pages and I I have easily read it 20 times and I'm still finding moments where I go, oh, oh, he's actually letting us know about the trauma way earlier. Mm -hmm. I just didn't realize it before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I finished it and I did that thing that we always say we're not going to do where I had read part of it and then watched the movie, then Mm. finished the book. Mm -hmm. And the movie, as we'll get to, is a lot more 
traditionally straightforward mm-hmm. in its narrative storytelling. And I wanted to go back and reread how the book began because I remember almost being frustrated right off the bat because I had a lot of difficulty putting those pieces together at the beginning because yeah. it opens up with a very introspective kind of circular like what is going on short excerpt and then there's a cut out from a newspaper it's like a newspaper article about a man who has died mm-hmm. and then it talks about Larry's first meeting with Johnny Beck in the classroom and mm-hmm. I was just like I don't understand what's happening <laughs> these these things are seemingly unrelated and I got really frustrated And it's interesting because all of those pieces, they do come together and they do integrate to tell a complete story, but you have to be willing to do some of that quilting, some of that storytelling, you have to be willing to put in the hard work Mm -hmm. to piece together. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think in that way, the whole book functions very much like trauma, like trauma is nonlinear, recovery from trauma is nonlinear memories of trauma are non-linear and so van camp doesn't ever give you a breath from that it's like you are always trying to understand why larry is telling you certain things where they're coming from what he's talking about where this non sequitur is coming from and as i say every time i pick back up the book it knits together a little tighter which i mean risky for a first book (laughs) you know to be like i'm gonna trust that readers will do the work on this like super risky for a first book but incredibly rewarding book to pick up over and over again eminently teachable can i just say i know we have a lot of high school teachers who listen this is a good one this is a good one for your senior english classes yeah people will have to work for but they will get a lot out of it and it's interesting what you said about trauma so I had the advantage of being able to pick up the 20th anniversary commemorative edition and it opens with a foreword from Van Camp himself and he talks about how he had to write this to release the trauma so that he could go on to write other kinds of books Mm. and I think that that power is really well captured in the book like this book burns and it is angry yes it is so raw and filled with emotion i'm trying not to be hyperbolic because i can't say that i loved reading it because it's hard it is hard it is hard it is well crafted though like the book is not a pleasurable read, <laughs> but there are moments of it where just looking at it from the perspective of the craft of storytelling, it's an important part of the book because Larry would like to be a storyteller. Like if he yes. could, if that could be what he does for the rest of his life, he would be happy. And so the story itself is so grounded in this storytelling and that the text itself is just such a well-crafted piece of work. Uh, pleasurable is not the right word, but that is satisfying. Mm-hmm. But the act of reading it is not pleasurable. I mean, we should say straight up for listeners who have sensitivities, they're... Oh yeah, trigger warning. Yeah, they're representations of sexual violence. They're representations of self-harm. They're representations of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't mean like kids smoking joints. I mean like kids huffing gas. Yeah. And Van Camp doesn't pull any punches no, with there's no sugar any coating. of that. Mm-mm. And so, yeah, you have to go into it being ready, I think. I don't think I prepped Joe very well for this book. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just go read this book, Joe. I love it. Teach it all the time. It's going to be fine. Well, without being facetious, it's Canadian and it's about 
the indigenous community. So I anticipated that it probably wasn't going to be the most happy of texts. Mm. And I actually do think that maybe at this point, if you're comfortable with it, I might put you into teacher mode sure. and ask you to provide a bit of context because I do recognize that we have more American listeners and we do have international listeners. They may not understand the indigenous context as it applies to Canada. And this book is steeped in what we here in Canada call the residential school system. Yeah, so obviously Canada is a colonial nation, and obviously the settler state of Canada is a product of the process of colonization. And what we often see represented, and not always, and there are a myriad stories to tell within Indigenous community, but often the stories that become popularized and published are stories that relate to the traumas of that history. Yeah. And often they are stories of sort of the cyclical nature of that trauma. So the history, as far as this book is concerned, is that both of Larry's parents were educated in the residential schooling system. So residential schools were set up first by the church and then later maintained by the state. Mm-hmm. And they were designed to, quote, unquote, educate, but really to assimilate. Mm-hmm indoctrinate indoctrinate and primarily to christianize the children from indigenous communities the mission statement of the residential school system was to quote kill the indian in the child the idea was that if you could expose children to good christian values and you could do it in a situation where they had been removed from their communities then you could quote unquote, save them. Yeah. The end result of this was generation after generation of children who, first of all, had not been raised within their communities and thus had not seen examples of family and parenthood. They'd been exposed often to horrific physical and sexual abuse, but yeah. even when not those things, emotional and cultural abuse mm-hmm. within the schooling system, you know, things like hair was cut, they were assigned Christianized names, they weren't allowed to speak their own languages, they weren't allowed to practice their religions, they weren't allowed to have any sort of cultural markers. This has had a massive ongoing cyclical impact of trauma. And one of the things that comes up is that when Larry is remembering his father's violence, he remembers that when his father drank, he spoke French. Right. Mm -hmm. So the implication there is that he would have been at a French Catholic residential school and the ways in which, you know, Larry is very resistant to religion at many points in the text. And yet at the same time feels this weight and this history and whiteness comes up over and over again in the text. Right. Like he is mesmerized by Juliet's whiteness. There are these like spiritual moments around his obsession slash fascination with whiteness Mm -hmm. and yet at the same time one of the greatest characters in the text for me is jed because he is really adamant about larry understanding traditional cultural practices and language and even though jed is not jed's not dog rib he's slavey i think but that connection to a different way of being in the world something that is divorced from the trauma that both his parents have have suffered Mm -hmm. is like really healing for larry this idea of cyclical trauma 
it's not a new concept, right? We've been talking about cyclical trauma in literature since the first books around the Holocaust came out. This idea that you yourself may not have been in the Holocaust, or you yourself may not have experienced the genocide that your parents did, or you yourself may not have been a refugee, but as a child of someone who had been through a horrifically traumatic experience, you inherit some of that trauma for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And we see that, right? Like Larry's mother, on paper, she's doing all the right things. She's removed Larry from the situation they were in before. She's mm -hmm. enrolled in school. She wants to better herself. She wants to make a better life for Larry, but she can't connect with him emotionally, right? No. And the implication in the text is that she has come through a system that made it impossible to, to know what a good family was, to make it impossible to know what love was, right? And so the fact that she can only accept this sort of abusive love from her ex-husband, the fact that she can't really show Larry physical love even when he's, Hurry. you know hurting like physically hurting she can't reach out and touch him she she um recoils from him when he's at, in his most significant moments of pain i mean i think we're really explicitly meant to see that as that cyclical trauma recurring so larry is not just having to kind of figure himself out in like the every teenager figuring himself out kind of sense he's also carrying around the traumatic baggage that has been imposed on him and his parents and his grandparents generationally, right? Yeah. And Van Camp does a really, I mean, beautiful, dark, but beautiful job telling us that part of the story without ever being didactic about it, right? Like the word residential school is only in the book once. Yeah. He never says like, here's a history lesson for you. He's, he's just telling us Larry's story and you can't tell us Larry's story without that history of trauma that Larry has to dig himself out from with very little social supports, with very little help, that is in integral to, to his story, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think Van Camp does a really good job of that in this text. It's just so interesting to me because I think Van Camp is a talented enough writer that you could read the book and you would be able to infer at least the surface level stuff about why Larry is damaged or why he's struggling but I think the book takes on a completely different kind of nuanced reading and interpretation if you have that understanding of the backstory mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. I mean as Canadians I think we're in a bit of a luxury position where we can say our nation is actually okay no I'm gonna walk that back um I was gonna <laughs> I was say that we're, we're actually we're in a position of luxury because we're being educated on it like mm. it is in the news it is something that has become so much more public mm -hmm. and the information is more available for our international listeners and our american friends in the last few years uh, okay so <laughs> there was um, a funding settlement for the trauma of residential school system and the survivors committed a portion of that money to something that was called the truth and reconciliation commission Yes. which was a massive fact-finding mission. Basically, the goal was like, we are going to write down the history of what happened so that people can't pretend that it didn't happen and that it didn't have an impact. Mm -hmm. Which seems great on the surface. Yeah. And it's been a massive, it was a massive coast to coast to coast, you know, communities being asked to tell their stories. But in so doing, you're also asking people to relive yeah. their trauma you're asking people to you know pick 
wounds for the government's benefit. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of structural issues, but all this to say, this is first and foremost in, in many people's minds now, I think, especially if you work in education at all. The recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are driving a lot of structural change, hopefully. We'll see. Um, But they're supposed to be driving a lot of structural change right now. Um, And so I think Canadians are aware of this history in a way that... hmm. Maybe other countries aren't. Yeah, and I'm actually going to reframe that. I think it is impossible in this moment in Canadian history to pretend you don't know this history. (laughs) What I mean by that is like, we are talking about it all the time. I think for a long time, it was easy to not see the colonial roots of Canadian history. If you were a, you know, financially comfortable white person living in a major city, you could exist without ever thinking about this stuff. And what the TRC has done is made that not a thing you get to do anymore. You don't get to pretend you don't know. Yeah, you would have to purposely go out of your way to pretend that you weren't aware or mm-hmm. you would, yeah, you'd have to be the kind of person who says, oh, well, those are other people's issues and I choose not to engage with them, which unfortunately and, we obviously do still encounter. But yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we have people in our Senate who are still doing that. So we, we're not a perfect, we are not a perfect country no, by any no. stretch of the imagination, but we're and I don't even mean a but there. We are not a perfect country, period. Mm-hmm. Also, we are in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> like, I don't want it to sound like I think that this conversation absolves no, this we have not solved settler this state's problem. history. No. no. And part but of I, that, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think when this book came out in 1996, this was not the same public conversation. No, no. And so I, th- I, I wonder, I mean, I didn't read this book for the first time until the late 2000s, I guess. So I really wonder what the difference of reading this would have been for, you know, a settler Canadian who didn't have that history then versus now. Mm -hmm. I suspect you could have read the book in 1996 as a settler Canadian with only a rudimentary understanding of that history, you know, whatever you got in grade 12. Yep. And basically miss all of the the cyclical nature of this trauma and just think it was like, this is a guy in a bad community with a crap family. Whereas once your eyes have been opened, this book, yeah, yeah, you're right, Joe, you said off a a little while ago that there's this whole added layer of nuance. And I think it's a testament to Van Camp's capacity as a storyteller that at no point, there's nothing here to feel, ugh, I don't even, I shouldn't even really go here. But like for settler readers, there's nothing here to get defensive about there's nothing here it's just this is larry's story this is his history this is where he comes from and if you want to understand larry you have to understand the history and i think that that's a powerful way of making a very personal and very micro scale the macro level trauma that the residential schooling system was Mm -hmm. i feel like maybe this is the point where we should introduce the macro level of a film good idea being made but also just because I feel like we could honestly talk about this for about yeah. another hour. Yeah, I mean, I regularly do like three weeks on this book, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's play the trailer for the 2012 film. You know, now is not the time to just walk away. Can't go back. They all know about me. A person has maybe three chances in, in life to stare down the devil right in the eyeballs. This is your most important one. 
Fort Simmer, Northwest Territories. Been here since my accident. Not much to do if you're not into booze or sports. Juliet Hope has the eyes of an angel. She could suck a man dry with those eyes. This film has an interesting genesis. It's written and directed by the same woman, Anita Doran, and she is not a Canadian. I read up on her backstory because I was trying to see what the internet had about the film. Mm -hmm. There's actually very little information about both the book and the film. Like, there isn't even a plot summary. It's the most kind of casual (laughs) description, like a drama centered on a First Nations teenager trying to find his place in the modern world. Oh, thank you. That's so helpful. (laughs) I noticed that a couple of different reviews of the film said that she was a bit of an unusual choice. And I don't know if it's because she's a woman or it's because she's not an Indigenous person Mm. or because she's actually not a Canadian. She emigrated out of, I think it was the USSR, but she had a very interesting childhood that I think puts her in a similar position where she was nearly sold off to a husband for 200 sheep. Jesus. Yes, and the only reason the sale didn't go through is because her father couldn't figure out a way to transport the animals. I say that not even like, that's the punchline. Oh my God. This woman has her own share of familial trauma (laughs) that I can't imagine she wasn't processing through. Like, it sounds like she grew up destitute and she wasn't on the receiving end of a lot of education she ended up coming to Canada to do her post-secondary education she came to Ryerson here in Toronto oh, okay and she went through the filmmaking program so she ended up writing and directing this as her first major piece after she graduated oh wow the other interesting thing is that the main actor in this film is not a professional actor this is his film debut so larry is played by joel evans and i think his lack of polish and finesse is a real asset to Mm -hmm. the film there are moments when i love him like and I, i just mean like Larry's awkward as hell in the book. He's supposed to be like, he blacks out in mid conversation and like forgets to respond to people regularly. And there's something so amazing about what this kid does with that. That is like, there are moments where he sells it so perfectly. It's quite impressive. He's quite a tall person or the rest of the cast is all very short, but he just seems to kind of tower over everyone else. But he's very slouchy and he acts with his eyes like he kind of looks permanently dazed or sleepy like he's so withdrawn he's seeing everything through a layer of distance yes yeah it's a crazy good performance I guess the most famous person apart from Benjamin Bratt who plays Jed I think he was kind of the the star power to help get the film made which is often like especially with Canadian indie films you'll often be like watching a Canadian indie film with like one American guy in it and you know that's how they got it funded (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) You've got to be able to sell this film somehow. Yep. 
but the the character of Johnny Beck, who's the you know the charismatic new kid in town, and he just seems to have everything that Larry wishes he could be. So he's played by Kawaya Gordon, and people who are familiar with the Twilight franchise may recognize him because he oh. went on to become one of Jacob's pack guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think he's actually really good, too. He got singled out in a lot of the reviews, but I think it's because the role itself is charismatic and charming. Yes. I mean, he sells it very, very well. But I think there's something to be said for when you have the character who is gregarious and outgoing and he can walk into a crowd and instantly win people over. That's an easier role to pull off than somebody who's withdrawn. Like, Larry is the lead of this film, but he is... It's a hard sell character. Yes, yes, I agree completely. And then I guess the other important person is Juliet, and she's played by Chloe Rose, and she has been in a couple of other things, but she's she's not going to be well known to anybody else. Um, Degrassi. Oh, sorry, jeez, I forgot. <laughs> she's like she was like Degrassi for like four years. What's the matter with you? <laughs> uh, I don't watch Degrassi, Brenda. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a, it's your biggest failing as a person. She wow. played Katie Matlin on Degrassi for our Degrassi fans in the house. There we go. Okay. Remember to tweet us at HKHS Podcast. Jeez, oh, no, that's not even the right Twitter. <laughs> that's not even the right. <laughs> I'm fired. <laughs> you are. The other interesting thing that the film does is it actually omits one of the characters. We haven't talked about him, but there's kind of two different bullies in the book. There's Darcy. Yes. And then there's Jazz. And Jazz has been omitted, so they become synthesized into Darcy. Into Darcy. Yeah. The other actor I want to make mention of is Tamara Pademski plays Larry's mom. Mm -hmm. And I really like her in a lot of roles. Um, Her sister is much more famous than her. Jennifer Pademski is a filmmaker. Okay. But Tamara Pademski was in the news a lot, like... Mm, last summer i think so she married an englishman and they moved she moved to england with him um and she's still an actress over there i guess but she very famously and tragically gave birth to her second child and her she had been downgraded i think from being supposed to have a c-section to being pushed to not have a c-section and her child died and she was in the news because this was such a It was such a horrific situation that it ended up creating like a giant NHS inquiry into how this was, how this happened. And they've changed all of their procedures around cesarean sections as a result of that tragedy. So if you, if her name sounds familiar and you follow the news, that might be why. Tragic. She wrote a really great piece for Chatelaine called Infant Loss about that experience. That is a really beautiful, just really beautiful personal essay. Totally aside, but you know. Yeah, I I don't know what to do with that. So I'm sorry. I just, I, I was recognizing her and I hadn't seen her in anything since the 90s. She was on um, the TV show The Res in the 90s. And um, I think she was in Dance Me Outside, the Bruce McDonald film. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. And I, her name was like ringing in my head for some reason. And anyway, I got to looking her up and that's what I found. So hmm. that's your trivia for this week. Oh, um, nice. So yeah, what did you think of the film, Joe? So I have mixed opinions. This is definitely one of those cases where... I think the film is good. Again, if you hadn't read the book, you would probably think the film was actually quite solid. Mm -hmm. And it's almost unfair to compare the film to the book because Mm -hmm. the film, there's no opportunity for it to do the book justice because of the way that the book is written. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
Totally. You would basically have to be, it would have to entirely be voiceover and the voiceover would have to be like incredibly fragmented and confusing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's just not possible. I thought the judicious use of voiceover was good. Oh gosh, I was so thankful for it. Yeah. But I was also thankful that it was judicious, that she didn't just like let us have every thought that Larry had, because I think the young man playing Larry is doing a really good job at telegraphing a lot of his, Mm -hmm. that sort of disconnect and fragmented feeling. There was one strategy that she used briefly, but I think not enough. Some of the scenes end with just this sharp cut to black, like a beat or two of black, and then you come up in the next scene and it's a completely different scene. Mm -hmm. But she only does it in that kind of dramatic- two or three times? To me, that is so much like what the experience of reading the book is. That gave me that sort of fragmented vignette kind of style of storytelling that I think underscores Larry's trauma so well in the book. Mm -hmm. And I almost wanted her to to do it more. I don't know if maybe it would have been visually distracting to do it more. But those moments were the moments where I felt unsettled in the same way that I did in the book. The only time I really had the the same sort of affective response to the film was when she used that cut strategy. Right. Yeah. I think there were a couple of really good visual strategies, but I'll agree with you that I think the film could have maybe benefited from a little more. I mean, I'm not going to lie. This is kind of a quintessential Canadian drama. So the book is obviously as well. But like if you're talking about what Canada and particularly art cinema from Canada, like it kind of gets exported to film festivals or wins awards. This is hitting every nail on the hammer. I was joking with Devin that I knew for sure I was watching a Canadian film because I kept trying to turn the contrast up on my iPad. (laughs) Canadian film is notoriously just dark. It's so dark. Dark. It's a lot of grays. It's a lot of like muted kind of depressing colors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense for this setting, right? Like part of it is you're trying to communicate visually that this is a town without hope, that it is Mm -hmm. financially not in a good situation. So we've got a lot of open vistas, the emphasis on wilderness, loneliness, social isolation. Those opening scenes, like over the woods, those are beautiful, just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever wanted to visit the North, this film is actually, what's not selling you on the social aspects, but the (laughs) beautiful nature is fairly well on display. (laughs) Although it was filmed in Sudbury, not the Northwest Territories. I know. I was actually really surprised by that, though I also can appreciate that filming in the North would have been an incredibly expensive enterprise. I went to a screening of this here in Vancouver. Actually, one of my favorite teaching moments, a student emailed me and was like, did you know that they made a movie of The Lesser Blessed? Anyway, so I went. It was great. And the um, Richard Van Camp was there giving a little talk. Nice. And one of the things that he said is that it was, it was hard enough to fund a film that was going to have such a primarily indigenous cast mm-hmm. to then turn around and be like, and also we were going to shoot it in the Northwest Territories would have yeah. just been a non-starter. No. And let's be real. Most films are not shot where they're set. No, of course not. Like, it doesn't happen all that often. And in this case, I don't think it would have been feasible in that way. No. But I think the other visual strategy that I was going to highlight was the drug use sequences. Mm. And it's not the most unique way of representing someone who's going on a bit of a bender, but I did feel like the dramatic change in editing, so it's a lot more fast cuts. Yes. The sound, the sound design in those scenes is really effective. Yeah. Like there's one scene where he's looking at Johnny and it almost sounds like Johnny's underwater. Mm -hmm. And Johnny's talking, but like he can't really understand him and you can't really understand him as a viewer. 
Yeah, that did work really well. Yeah. I guess I kind of wish that there had been just a bit more of that. Particularly in the book, you get the impression that Larry is high almost all the time the further that the book advances. It's basically, I don't think we really talked about this, but when they arrive in Fort Simmer, one of the things that has made Larry a bit of a social outcast is that he sounds pretty straight edge when he arrives. Like he Mm -hmm. won't, he doesn't doesn't smoke, he doesn't doesn't drink, he doesn't touch anything. And it's upon meeting Johnny and actually having a social world to fold into that he gets involved with this stuff. It's also interesting, of course, because his past prior to Fort Simmer was full of, drugs so it's like he's he has had this kind of three-year reprieve from that version of his life but i really do get the sense that once johnny is on the scene it's very much like go time Mm -hmm. you know like he's going to be into everything all the time yeah and again we're firmly into familiar coming of age ya territory where it's like you know okay you have to decide what kind of person you're going to be are you going to experiment with this stuff and then how well do you come out the other side of it and Mm -hmm. It was an interesting experience. So I was watching this and then Brian came home about halfway through and he ended up sitting down and watching it with me and he was really entranced in it, but he was also deeply mortified. Like he didn't understand (laughs) why Larry kept going after Juliet when Juliet and Johnny were already an item. He was like, I don't understand. Why is he doing this? Like he knows about their relationship. And I was like, but this is who the character is. Yeah. His vices overwhelm him he doesn't have good decision making he doesn't have impulse control like he has no impulse control no so it's why he had to either be completely straight edge for three years or literally doing hash knife like hot knifing hot knives hot knives is that what it's called when you do the hash i think so okay that terrified me i mean the sequences were well filmed but also especially because it's because of the people it's coming from. So in the film, it's coming from Darcy. And we know yeah. that Darcy is bad news. Yeah. Yeah. And then this guy is like, here, let's do these drugs. And you get that voiceover, you know, which is line for line from the book. It's like, my mind was telling me, no, don't do this. My mind was telling me to run away. And instead he just says yes. And you're like, yeah. no, like, no, but really don't. don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the scene in the book, when they're describing the hot knives, I was like, does this end with them burning down this entire apartment building? Because mm-hmm. it seems like it's going to. Well, because you also get the impression that anything to do with fire yes. is bad, right? Like there's yes. a recurring motif about fire. Like the coat in the book, sorry. He's trying to get uh, Juliet alone, and so he lights fire to Johnny's coat? Yes. Sure. That was a crazy moment. And then he immediately pins it on another kid. Yeah. It's like, Larry, like, buddy. <laughs> yeah. No impulse control whatsoever. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot going into that. There's a history of trauma. There's a history of drug abuse. There's yeah. the constant current drug abuse. There's several brain injuries, right? Like, mm-hmm. it makes sense that he can't, but it also, those are the moments when it's hard to love him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably simultaneously one of the most sympathetic and unsympathetic protagonists that we have encountered thus far. I would agree with that, yeah. But I think that comes across fairly clearly in the film version as well. I agree. What I like about it in the book is that that tension is sort of shot through the whole family. Um, And this is another film where we don't get a lot of parents. No. We don't have that arc that's going on between Jed and Larry's mom. That doesn't exist for us in the film version, which is kind of a shame. But it seems to be the way of things with our YA adaptations. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because the bits and pieces that we do get to see of Jed and Verna, I think, are very well utilized. Mm -hmm. But I think they also reinforce just how absent they are. 
I agree completely. So I guess the big distinction between the book and the film is that the film rearranges the order of certain events, and it also tips its hand a little bit more. So we do get a bit more exposition. We get a bit more, you know, so you did this thing, and it's said aloud, and it's very clear, like, did you or did you not? Yes. How did you get those scars? Let me lay it out for you. Which I didn't always love, but I can appreciate why. It's much harder to have a lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the film still does capitalize on that, particularly in the way it ends. This isn't a film that gives you a happy wrap-up with closure. It's like the characters scattered to the wind in far worse situations than they began in. Yep. And there's no kind of, and then this happened to make you feel a little bit better. It's like, no, things are just going to keep getting bad. Yeah, it's interesting because Larry has some hope at the end of both texts, but everyone around him is worse off. So Jed and Verna are going to try to make a go of it. So that's a positive. And Larry has this like important climactic scene that gives him hope at the end of the text. And then everyone else's life is destroyed (laughs) (laughs) which you can only laugh at because it's just so horrible well it's just (laughs) it's so much right and you have this whole sense of like these are children like one of the things that i keep coming back to uh we haven't mentioned it but johnny has a younger brother donnie Mm -hmm. he's such a little wise ass (laughs) he's such a little wise ass and in the book he's deeply tragic as a figure johnny has been sort of forced into the role of being the parent Mm -hmm. to the point where like Johnny has a swear jar for his younger brother and he uses the money that his kid brother puts in the swear jar to like buy their milk and stuff because his mom is so not in the picture. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong in thinking that there's an insinuation that his mother is a sex worker? I don't know. I don't disagree with you that that is plausible given the few details we have about her. Okay. But we know for sure that whether she's a sex worker or just like a party girl, she right. has these parties. She brings these men home. Like mm-hmm. Donnie has a cigarette butt scar in the center of his palm. He's mm-hmm. a child. And the kitchen floor is littered with burns. Like the linoleum yes. floor is covered in them. And we know that Donnie is deeply troubled. He draws mm-hmm. violent images. He... When that happened in the film, shocking. Yeah, I know. Heartbreaking. And that kid did a really good job with that, too. I, I always worry about the children <laughs> actors in these movies because they're yeah. just so often, they're so, so often given more than they can possibly deal with, you know? Yeah, you're like, we don't want you to look at the drawing. We just want you to hold it up and act <laughs> proud. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it is deeply disturbing. And so Donnie is just such a tragic figure. His existence underscores Johnny's tragedy. Mm-hmm. Johnny says at one point in the text, to Larry, and it, in the film as well, he says to Larry that he just wished Johnny could stay a kid a little bit longer. He finds out that his brother's been looking at porn, and he says yeah. he wished he could have stayed a kid a little bit longer. And then at the end of the text, the last thing Johnny says in both the book and the film is that he wants to stay a kid a little bit longer, you know? And it's this idea that, like, Johnny's never been a kid. He's no. never had a childhood. No. Even just the way that Johnny interacts with Johnny, you can see just further evidence of the perpetuation of Mm -hmm. the cyclical trauma and the generational trauma. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not going to stop. It will only continue because Johnny's going to grow up and he's going to be just as messed up. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's tough stuff. Now, there is one scene that I'm intrigued to get your read of from the film. Okay. And it's an invented scene, as far as I can remember, when... 
Larry disappears into the woods. Yes. And he ends up spending overnight. I didn't love the positioning of it because that happens. And then he has this big fight scene with Darcy that puts him into the hospital. So it's kind of big emergency situation followed immediately thereafter by big emergency situation. And it felt like it diluted the fact that he is beaten up so badly that he has to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I also kind of felt like you can't have someone spend overnight in the Northwest Territories and then just kind of shrug it off like, I put a jacket on him and he was fine. I'm like, (laughs) I think you'd have frostbite, even though this is maybe not winter, it's still going to be pretty October, I think, when that happens. Yeah. So I guess, though, I mean, the purpose of that scene is to give Jed something to do, right? To show the connection because it it replaces the scene in the book where Jed and Larry have their kind of heart-to-heart conversation over the woodpile. It it Mm -hmm. basically replaces that scene, but it's big. So in the book, so much of what you understand about why Larry wants Jed around is in Larry's anticipation of Jed's arrival and the few days afterwards before he sort of descends into his Johnny-led stupor. (laughs) Yeah. So we find out, like, Larry is incredibly self-aware in those those first few pages as well in ways that are really useful to us when he becomes kind of less so as the narrative progresses because there's one point where he says... He says, it sounds lame to say this, but I just really wanted a dad figure around. And you're like, yeah, you did. Yeah, Yeah, you wanted a dad figure. You want stability. That's allowed. So in the book, we know how much Jed means to Larry from the start, Mm -hmm. right? He's anticipating him coming home. He wishes his mom would just get it together to stay with Jed. There's a beautiful vignette where after Jed has arrived, Larry just lists off all the things of Jed's that are in the house, like Jed's mud boots are on the porch and Jed's jacket is in the closet and Jed's guns are behind the couch and like he's just listing off all the things and then the last line of that is like yes (laughs) you know it's this idea of how happy he is to have Jed back there's no real way to tell us that in the film because that's all interior to Larry so instead in the film what we get is Jed rescuing Larry Mm -hmm. to sort of show that bond that they have and I found rescue (laughs) yeah and it's a little I mean it's a shame in that Jed's rescue of Larry is emotional, psycho-spiritual, right? Like he's helping Larry reconnect with indigenous language and he's helping Larry to find music and he's helping Larry to do the hunt and he's helping Larry to connect to these aspects of young manhood that have deep cultural resonance for Larry. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, we just get so little of that because we just get so little of Jed. And so I think that that scene is meant to replace all of that. But uh, to me, it's fine. It's just a bit ham-fisted compared to the nuance of the book. Yeah, it's true. I will say one thing, and again, this is, it's a little bit on the nose, but when he's having triggering flashbacks to the incidents with his father, sorry, Larry is, and he's Mm. on the edge of this frozen lake, Mm. which I think is, you know, visually quite captivating, but also, you know, like he's, on the precipice of something and you fear for him you know Mm -hmm. part of me was like oh is he gonna wander out onto that lake and something disastrous is going to happen and instead he just ends up having a bit of a meltdown but there's an insinuation that he might also be eaten by wolves yes and i love the visual symbolism of the wolves fighting in front of him while he's having his meltdown because it's later revealed that it's not like i'm not even certain if the wolves were actually there yeah i'm not sure either it's really reflective of his internal struggle and you know thinking about the indigenous connection to animals and spirits and that kind of stuff I thought it was a clever way of bringing to the force some of those conflicts it's interesting because there are so many more animals in the book 
Yeah. I'm thinking of the Ptarmigans. Yes. It's an interesting shift that she that she chooses as a filmmaker because in the book, Larry and Darcy are driving to see Juliet in like a three-wheeler. And Darcy hits two ptarmigans, or he scares one ptarmigan and hits another one, and they are in their winter coats. Mm-hmm. Can you have a coat of feathers? Yeah, anyway, I think they're so. they're dressed for winter, <laughs> so they're pure white. And the one that is injured, Larry breaks its neck to put yeah. it out of its misery. Mm-hmm. And then he stuffs it into his jacket. <laughs> and then he stuffs it into his jacket. And there's all this imagery around like whiteness and and that scene, right? And this sort of gentle care, but also like end of life mm-hmm. scene he's having with this ptarmigan like right before he has his final scene with Juliet like it's yeah. super resonant who he describes in very loving care about like her whiteness and her, yes I think he even calls her like various descriptors of birds doesn't he white animals in general he yes. uh, refers to her, her as like a, a white caribou there's a bunch of different moments where that happens mm-hmm. and so in the film version they change it to a crow yes and it's black and or it's black. It might be a raven. Yeah, you're right. It might be a raven. And it's black and it doesn't have the same yeah. resonance. It's just like, why is Larry got a dead bird in his coat? A little bit. <laughs> what yeah. you doing, Larry? Are you so goth you carry dead birds in your coat? What's going on? Yeah, it almost <laughs> feels like a bit of a callback to the scene that's in both the film and the book where the ravens get into his garbage. And garbage. He has to clean it up. But yeah. I guess you could do it as a bit of a stretch to say that he's kind of carrying around garbage or he's got the weight of these scattered remains. Yeah. But I don't think it works quite as well. Not as well as the book. No, for sure. I preferred the imagery where he goes to the dance and he's talking about Juliet and then the wall of the gym dissolves into almost like a painting of a white caribou. Yes. I thought that yes. was really visually impressive as well. That was really beautifully done. Yes, you're right. Visually impressive and also a really good use of that same imagery, evocative in the same way that the book was. I was really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. I think Anita Doran makes some some pretty clever choices in that regard. I, I think, like we talked about earlier, it just would have been good to have had a bit more of them. Like sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes this is just too much of a straightforward drama. And I think it could have... I guess, come to life a little bit more with some of those visual pieces. Maybe that wouldn't make them as impressive as a result, but... Yeah, I do agree with you, though. It's interesting because I was reading somewhere that she worked with Adam Agoyan in her various training. Yeah, when she was at school. And to me, there's a lot of visual resonance between this film and something like The Sweet Hereafter. Yes, 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 Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Okay, so I have something that's going to make you mad. Okay. I'm just going to read it, and I want to hear your reaction. Okay. So I mentioned off the top that I had done some reading of different reviews. This film doesn't have a ton of reviews, and many of them are from Canadian reviewers at, like, the Globe and Mail and Canada.com and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pull out this review. It's by Catherine Monk, who is a relatively famous film critic here in Canada. And this is her review from Canada.com. She gives the film 2.5 out of 5 and more or less says that it's fine, but it's nothing great. And here's the part that I thought you would enjoy. I say this jokingly. The Aboriginal element doesn't come into play in any direct way. There are no sacred moments with the wise ancestors or any dancing with wolves. Scratch that. There are wolves and there are wise men, but the wolves don't dance and the wise man is more like a big brother. 
No, 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 no. Dorn does not turn the Aboriginal setting into a motif or even a metaphor for spirituality because Whitey isn't in the frame. There is no other in this movie. There is only the outsider, and he feels different for reasons other than ethnicity. So what was Catherine Monk smoking when she saw this movie? (laughs) I recognize it's not good radio, but I was literally just, like, my hands were over my mouth, and I was just, like, frozen. Okay, I have two things. First... What kind of, we don't swear on this show, No. what kind of effed up assumptions are rooted in the idea that a story about indigenous people has to be full of like your weird stereotypes mm-hmm. of what you think indigenous faith looks like? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Gross. It's number outrageous one. outrageous and disgusting. Totally outrageous and disgusting and gross. Number one. Number two, did you not notice that all of the bullies and all of the people in any position of power in this film are white? white? Did you not notice that? Are you bad at watching movies, Catherine Monk? Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to do a bit of that history lesson because I think if you look at this and you are willfully ignorant, you, (laughs) you can end up with a Catherine Monk style viewing experience. But I thought it was just so telling that you could watch this movie that is so obviously deeply rooted in a more contemporary Indigenous experience that doesn't placate to white stereotypical conventions. And this is that's the kind of response that you might end up having. So that review is basically, I mean, the subtext of that review, if I was, if this was academic writing class, I would be saying <laughs> the warrant of her claim. The subtext there is that you can't tell a story that centers indigeneity like it's what she's implying is that like why would we want to watch a movie where the where the other is at the center and i'm super disturbed by the fetishization of yeah okay there's this really great book that listeners should totally read if they're interested in contemporary representations of indigenous people and that is thomas king's the inconvenient indian Mm, it's great It's great because it's funny as hell, for starters. It's not dry. It's not dry at all. But he's he talks in that book, he sort of sets it up that there are live Indians and there are dead Indians, is the way he frames it. And like, settler culture only ever wants to deal with dead Indians. Yeah. They want to just deal with their perception of what indigenous culture once was, and they want to be allowed to wear their headdresses to Coachella, and they don't want to have to actually deal with living, breathing human beings who exist in a contemporary context and are allowed to evolve and allowed to change and don't have to play into your stereotypes and your imagination of what they ought to be doing. Everybody should read that book and nobody should read Catherine Monk's review. That is a terrible (laughs) review. Yeah. You know, I read a bunch of them and, and a lot of them, they talked about the filmmaking style. They talked about the performances. A couple of them said this feels like a fairly traditional coming of age films through an indigenous lens and that was you know kind of the the crux of how far they were willing to take it and then there's this where I was just like like that is so obtuse that I just could not understand it and you know what sure this film is seven years old did we know better in 2012 maybe not but that ooh, like it's so it's just so stupid. Like it is that really is stupid. such white privilege coming <laughs> through your writing. It's yeah. It is. It is ridiculous. It's um yes. 
That's all I have to say yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay. I don't care for it. <laughs> I don't care for it either. <laughs> okay. Well, how about we move on to some YA bingo? Yay. Okay. And I should probably remind you that we have removed the O Canada slot because right. we Damn. Have, this is only the second one. <laughs> and <laughs> That's fair. Bingo! Not a good bingo. I feel like we should have a way of indicating like the exact opposite of something on our square, by which I mean this is the exact opposite of our rich people problems square. Yes, there we go. And it's actually something that I think, I didn't mention it, but it's something that I think is a powerful component of this film is like, there are a lot more teenagers in this world who live in houses that look like Larry's. I don't even mean as horrific a situation as Johnny is in, but there's a lot more people living in houses that look like Larry's than there are people living in houses looking like Simon's from Love, Simon, you know? And I think it's worth seeing that represented. This is not just a film that represents a different experience, you know, from the perspective of it's an indigenous story. It's also representing a very different experience of class than we have yet seen in our texts. Uh, I would challenge mm-hmm. with the depiction of Star's house in The Hate You Give. I know it's not Fair. on par, but that to me was a little bit more reflective of a real life low to reaching towards middle class. That's a fair point. I wasn't thinking of Star. That's a fair point. I mean, admittedly, I have the list pulled up in front of me, so that's (laughs) probably why I was able to jump to it. But yeah, you're right. Apart from that, really, we've been firmly entrenched in middle to upper class luxury. And I think that's a trope in YA, and I don't know where it comes from. But I like seeing different stories being told, and I think that diverse representation needs to include class. Yeah. Well, I think part of this is that a lot of the texts that we've looked at are fantasy, you know, yeah, some of them are, are tried and true fantasy, and then others are flights of fancy. That's a fair point. I we, <laughs> we have a slutty secondary character. Yes. I almost appreciated how forthright Juliet is. Mm-hmm. I love that scene at the end of the book when she's just like, every high school needs a school slut. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> like, that's just, that's how I got so cast. Crushing. It is, because it destroys her. Yeah. Brian was like, how are you two going to have fun with this? And I was like, (laughs) I mean, I feel like we're just going to laugh through the pain because both of these Mm -hmm. texts are just straightforward tragedy car crashes. Yeah, 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 they are. (sighs) Okay, what did I say? I said slutty secondary character. A scene that we have not talked about is the slave auction. Okay, so I honestly thought that that would get cut for the film. Because I looked at it and I said, okay, 1996 it's dicey, but maybe. And then 2012, I was like, no. There, no, I know. Actually, this is, okay, this is my true hashtag HKHS pod. Does anybody know if this kind of stuff is still going on in high schools? Because there definitely was a slave auction in my high school. It would have been around 1996 when I was in grade nine. And I look back at that and I think, what? where what? were the adults? Yeah. Where were the adults? Well, and even in this, the teacher is literally bidding on a student. This is why like. I bring it up. This is why I bring it up, because I feel like Mr. Harris is a pervy teacher. (laughs) I mean, why is he buying that child? Why is he buying that child? I would hope that we're not going to find out that they're called slave auctions, but I'm willing to bet that there are hazing rituals that still look like that by someone else for servitude. So gross. It's funny because I I really remember the one in our school gym when I was in grade nine. Ugh, gross. Where were the grown-ups? Um, love Triangle, obviously. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, very clear. And Dead Parent. I was going to say. Dead Parent was mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's... Oh, oh, parents just don't understand because they're not there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you could write an entire essay about absent fathers or bad yeah. fathers in this book. Yeah. Oh, my God. Johnny's dad. Like... Mm. I love that he's in one scene in both the book and the film and <laughs> just so memorable. Yep. Yep. Boof. Yeah. I do. I genuinely love this book. Like, I don't mean that it's fun to read and I don't mean that it's like should be number one on your summer reading list necessarily. <laughs> don't take it to the beach, folks. It's not a beach read, but it's a really well-crafted piece of literature that will stick with you. Yeah. It is yeah. a resonant book. I would say this is probably the most meaningful book that we've read. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think any books that are dealing with tragedy and trauma, I'm thinking back to Persepolis, I'm thinking mm -hmm. to The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. These books have a weight and a gravitas to them mm -hmm. that I think, I mean, I think they make for a more interesting podcast. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Maybe not quite as enjoyable as when we get to, you know, yell at women who are attracted to danger and <laughs> speculative <laughs> fantasy, but... Luckily, we have no shortage of that in YA, but we really should celebrate the weightier books, the books that yes. will actually stick with you for some time. I think we should celebrate the authors who are writing YA and who are taking formal risks, mm -hmm. who are challenging their readers to the be strong screens. readers. Yeah, I think that's worth celebrating. And this is definitely one of those books. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. Um, okay, so sign off time. Brenna, how can people get a hold of you? you can find me on twitter at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and if you want to contact us both at once you can use the hashtag hkhs pod and let us know what you think of the show this week joe what's your handle on the twitters mine is b stole my remote and that's the letter b and of course if you want to send us something a little bit longer i don't think we're looking for lesser blessed fan fiction but no, if thank you have you. other examples you can send it to the gmail account it's hkhspod at gmail.com Awesome. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Mm -hmm. So we are continuing our slightly nationalist approach to the podcast. So we were in Canada this week. Next week, we're going to go to the complete other side of the world. And we are going to check out The Changeover by Margaret Mayhew from 1984, which is a little New Zealand ghost story. Fantastic. I'm genuinely excited about it, I have mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. yeah, little witches or ghosts or something. I'm excited the film version has Lucy Lawless in it. So you know that got me sold right there. <laughs> I do like a witch. I don't always love a ghost, but I always like a witch. Yeah. We'll figure out when we pick up the book next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So until then, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. <laughs>